Good morning. Hey, everybody. How y'all doing? Happy Sunday. My name's Nathan. I'm another one of the pastors here. And um, I'm going to talk for a little while, if that's all right. Um, I wanted to start by just, I know we just sat down after standing up for a while, but why don't we stand up again just really quick. For some of us, if singing doesn't get us loosened up, I know I'm a little uptight, so why don't we just like shake it out a little bit, okay? Do some stretching. That's right, Liz is, Liz is into it back there. Stretch it out a little bit. Our bodies, minds, spirits, everything is connected. Everything is, everything is all intermingled, so let's stretch out our spirits and our bodies a little bit and get ready to hear. Okay, give your neighbor a high five. Sit back down. Very good. <laughs> nice work. All right, so like Russell said, everyone, we are in uh, the period of Lent right now, which is the six weeks leading up to uh, Holy Week and culminating in Good Friday and Easter Sunday when we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, Lent is a 40-day period that if you grew up in a church tradition, you might be familiar with that term, Uh, probably most likely associated with giving something up for Lent. I know that's the way I grew up, was Lent is about fasting, it's about giving something up. Uh, And at Hope Brooklyn, we've tried to kind of distill that practice into four main steps. So we're looking at a different um, issue or or idol uh, for each one of these six weeks, and then we are following these four steps. We're we're naming the idol, we're identifying it, we're confessing the idol, we're calling calling it out for what it is, we're removing the idol or fasting from it, and then we're replacing it or forming a new habit. Um, and the idol could be what we've gone through. Um, Mike talked about community and family last week. Russ introduced the topic the week before. Um, so we're, we're looking at sort of cultural narratives and things we've been told that uh, are either have become unhealthy or, or unhelpful for our lives, and we're, we're trying to remove those fast from them and replace them with kingdom liturgies or kingdom practices, basically. This is just one of the ways that we retune our hearts to the narrative of the gospel and to the kingdom of God. Uh, and idolatry is kind of an intimidating, churchy-sounding word, but all it really means is to take God from where he belongs as central, as leader of our life, and replace him with something else that's not meant to be in that place. Um, so as we talk about idolatry and idols, um, it's kind of a dark, scary-sounding concept, but that's really, it's a very simple, simple idea that we're replacing God with something else in our life. And that's where this whole idea of mirrors come into play. We as people are natural mirrors, we're natural imitators. It's how, it's how the, human, the human being is put together. Um, it's a bad practice for public speakers to say they're nervous in front of people because the audience becomes nervous for the person up front. We're natural mirrors. That's all I'm gonna say about that. Um, so I'm an, I'm an actor by trade, it's what I went to school for, it's what me and my wife Steph moved to New York City for, and uh, in the acting world, uh, a little bit of an example of, of what we're talking about with this whole series, um, in the craft of acting, especially in the more classical style, uh, you can look at any screenplay or play script, um, and a script that is well written and has compelling characters, these characters follow an arc. They start somewhere and they end somewhere and they end differently than how they start. And there's all sorts of things that happen along the way, right? We've all read books, we've all seen movies, we've all heard stories. Um, and and uh, if the characters are compelling and well-written, you can break each scene up 
And when you analyze the character, you can basically uh, break down what's happening in each scene with um, the, the statement, I want blank. These characters are driven by motivations and desires. We call them objectives. And these objectives can be char characterized in that one statement, I want blank. Um, back up a little further and you have the super objective. So you string all these scenes together in the play or in the film and you have a super objective, something that the character is going for, something that they want and they either achieve or don't achieve, depending on whether it's a comedy or a tragedy. And what happens um, when drama ensues is when those characters' objectives come face to face with an obstacle. Just an interesting example, if, if acting is the study of the human condition and the human psyche, which it is, it goes to follow that we, as human beings, are driven by our wants and our desires. We're not driven by facts or information or bullet point lists or even sermons on a Sunday necessarily, unfortunately. That would be really nice, wouldn't it? If we came to Sunday or came to church every Sunday and heard a sermon and we walked out different. That's not the way it works generally. We're driven by our affections. We become what we behold, like a mirror. We're driven by our motivations and our objectives. I think I, I have this theory that I've heard that we all ultimately we all ultimately do what we most want to do. Even if we're doing what we ought or what we think we ought, we're doing that because we ultimately want that. We're driven by our desires and our affections. We know physical exercise is good for us. Does that make a difference? Do we do that? Not necessarily. Like Russ said a couple of weeks ago, he knows kale is good for him. Does he eat it? And I quote, kale sucks. <laughs> we aren't necessarily changed by a sermon every Sunday, like I said. We aren't changed by facts, we're changed by our affections. The good news is we can change these desires. We can turn things around. We're not a slave to our desires. We can change. We're born incredibly adaptable and incredibly malleable. You see this in kids from the earliest age. It's how we learn language, right? We imitate those around us. It's how you learn facial expressions and empathy. It's how we learn social cues. Even couples who are together for a long time or married for years and years, their heartbeats actually start to sync up. There are physiological things that happen in which we mirror each other. So what we're gonna dive into talking about work and rest today and kind of those cultural narratives that we're told and uh, some kingdom narratives from scripture. So as we dive in today's cultural liturgy and practice and as we name it, confess it and contrast it in hopes of replacing it with some good healthy kingdom practices, can we start in prayer? Can I pray for us? God, what an amazing gift to call you the creator of the universe, Father. You are the one who can truly transform. You are the one that our desires are grasping at, ultimately. And as we talk about work and rest today, calm my nerves, guide my words, and help every one of us here listening to open our hearts and surrender to what you might be telling us, Lord. Give us the humility and the sensitivity to hear what you have to say and give us the courage to respond to it and to surrender to it. We love you. Thank you for grace and all your amazing good gifts. Thank you for Jesus and for being with us. Amen. Work. Did some of your faces scrunch up a little bit when I say that word? 
What does that word elicit? What do you think about when I say that word? We all have different relationships with work, right? Maybe depending on what you do, maybe depending on what your parents did or the work ethic they instilled in you. We're all on a spectrum from, I'm sure here, from workaholics to slackers or somewhere in between. People who can't put it down or people who cannot get far enough away from it at all costs. <laughs> if, you don't, if you aren't one of those per people, I'm sure you know someone on that spectrum. Um, so I'm going to ask you a couple questions and we're going to kind of meditate on what we think about the idea of work and our own work and our own lives, all right? These are, um, uh, these are not questions that need an audible response. Just uh, think about them, meditate on them. Sometimes we don't know what we actually think about something until we actually give ourselves the space to contemplate. What constitutes work? What is it for you? Notice how that word makes you feel. Why do you work? Do you like your job? <laughs> Heard a papa bear groan out there. Why or why not? How many hours a week do you spend working? Do you value what you do? How many hours a week do you rest? I'm talking conscious, intentional rest, not the hours you spend a week sleeping. Are you scheduled and intentional with your rest like you are with your work? As I was taking some time with these questions this week and reflecting on on things about work and rest, I didn't even, yeah, I didn't even know how I felt about some of these things or, uh, you know, we, we slip into these patterns of life and we're so, we're so habitual as human beings that it's hard, to, uh, it's hard to sometimes zoom back and get a bird's eye view of things and what's actually happening in our lives and the choices we're actually making and realizing that they are choices and it's up to us. It's good to take time and reflect. That's part of naming. What do the stories of the Bible say about work? Well, the short answer is a lot, but the first instance we have is uh, right away. We don't have to look very far. It's in the first chapter of the first book. <laughs> uh, so we're going to dive into Genesis 1 here. Uh, this is the part of the story on the proverbial sixth day after God splits the void and separates light from darkness, and makes dry land emerge from the seas, and he stocks the land with animals and the sky with birds and the sea with fish. So we're picking it up in verse 26 here. And then God said... Let us make humankind in our image, after our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I now give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the entire earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the animals of the earth, to every bird of the air and to all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. It was so. And God saw all that he had made, 
and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Going on in chapter two, it says, the heavens and earth were completed with everything that was in them. By the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing and he ceased on the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he ceased all the work he had been doing in creation. Let's look at the kind of work God's doing here right away in Genesis. His work is creative, right? The first picture we see of God is as creator. He's making stuff. He's making stuff out of nothing. His work is creative and it brings life. His work is also provisionary and sustainable. He's setting forth systems in motion. He's building an animal kingdom and he's setting things to continue to sustain themselves. Talks about seeds and fruit-bearing trees and things that will continue to repopulate and replenish and reproduce, right? God's work is creative and it's provisionary to take care of itself at the same time. But in some strange cosmic paradox in the story, even God, this divine and infinite mystery, even he seems to know his limits. He rests. He takes a break and he kicks back and he says, this is very good, right? And notice which day God sets apart as special. After every day of his work, he says, oh, that's good. But on the day that he rests, he says, that's a different kind of good altogether. It's the weekend. It's the weekend that he blesses. He says, this is special. Scripture says he calls it holy, which means set apart, to separate it, to call it unique and special. It's not the day that he makes dry land emerge from the waters or splits the void or even breathes life into the pinnacle of his creation, human beings. It's the day he, it's the day he rests. So what does this ancient narrative about a creator God and the origins of the world tell us about our work today? Well, let's notice the divine order of things and how God does it. God works and he calls his work good. It's valuable. The nature of God's work is creative and it's provisionary. It sustains itself. God rests and God calls the rest a different kind of good altogether. As part of this divine order, God's, notice how God's first day of rest is humankind's first day of existence. The way the story goes, humans are awoken to a God who's resting. Our first view of God is seemingly relaxed, at peace, kicked back almost. The first view of a creator God who eventually we get the beautiful privilege to call Father isn't a working, absent father. It's a restful, present one. He's leading by example here, I think. He created us to mirror and to imitate. I think we are also created to work. God isn't the only one doing work in the first part of Genesis here. And our work should be creative and provisionary as well. Our work should bring life. And our work should sustain life, being provisionary. Like I said, God isn't the only one who works. Humankind is brought into the picture and uh, they're given a garden. They're given a garden to tend. They're farmers, they're gardeners. In that agrarian culture, it would be really easy to understand that concept. In New York City, maybe not so much. 
But we're not, we're not born into a factory or a sweatshop. We're born into a garden where there is beauty. There's work to be had, but there's also beauty to be enjoyed. And our first example from a creator God, this divine father, of how to work well is how to rest well. As if he's saying, this is how it's done. If you want to work with me, you've got to learn to rest with me. All right, now let's think about the narrative that the world around us tells us um, and sells us about work, especially in our current cultural context being the West and the U.S. and New York City in particular, all right? Um, maybe some ways that which, in which we think about work that may be unhealthy or unhelpful, um, as it, especially as it relates to our worth, our security, and our identity. New York City knows how to work, folks. We work hard. We work long hours. We work long days. We have crazy schedules. We're on a fast track and a fast pace at breakneck speed. We work hard and we play harder. And there's nothing wrong with working hard. Working hard is a good thing. We should be faithful and we should be good at what we do. And like Paul says to, to the, uh, to, in his letter to the Colossians, we should work as unto the Lord. But so much of our current work culture has become so inextricably bound by a consumerist and capitalistic society that we have to work, right? I'm sure when I said, why do you work? It's like, it's obvious. I, I can't, you can't not work. You have to work to pay the rent and to pay bills and to get out of debt, to buy groceries. You have, you have to work to live. It's become a necessity, not only a valuable privilege. It's a necessity of adulthood and if we ultimately want to move out of our parents' basement, right? Get a job. <laughs> well, what are we working for in this narrative? A paycheck, obviously. Also, nothing wrong with that. If a paycheck isn't showing up every two weeks, you should be sending a strongly worded email to payroll, right? And ultimately, retirement. That's part of the narrative, too. Nothing wrong with these things. Except that with, with the whole culture of working so hard up to retirement or, or to this, this, end, this end goal of maybe finally we can take a rest. Maybe finally one day we can kick back and have some peace and quiet. It's like we've been trained to treat rest like a future reward, something out there instead of treating it like a present reality that we can be living in and living through. We treat rest like it's it's something in the future instead of something we can be enjoying now in our work and aside from our work. And instead of being fueled by our rest, we're treating it like an inheritance that might come someday. It's in our language. I'm working for the weekend, right? TGIF. That's how we talk about it. If we work hard enough, we might be able to afford to rest someday. One of the strongest impressions I got of New York work culture when Steph and I moved here about a year and a half ago um, and I was rushing around to different temp agencies and catering gigs and just trying to make ends meet in any way I could. Um, I remember getting this picture like I was in this bleak future dystopian movie where there's this controlled culture that's pumping themselves full of addictive legal stimulants every morning so that they can get through the work of the day and the drudgery of what they have to do so that they can stop and pump themselves full of addictive legal depressants every evening, so that they can forget about the drudgery of the work all day, so they can crash and wake up and pump themselves full of addictive legal stimulants, and the whole cycle starts all over again. <sighs> it's 
It's kind of frightening. That's an extreme, obviously, but it, it kind of characterizes a little bit of the work culture of New York City. Work is good. Work is good and it has value. There's nothing wrong with work. We are created to work. We're made to work. But a troubled relationship with it or a preoccupation with it, these are things that can start to control us. And that's when we start to put it in the place of God as an idol. I also remember when we moved here and we were trying to piece things together and figure out how to pay the bills. Um, it was about two months or so before uh, either of us found any sort of steady, steady income and it took a toll on me. The two times I've been legitimately depressed in my life are times when I've uh, not been working. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, my, my uh, teachers went on strike and uh, I was out of school for about two months, which sounds awesome. Uh, and it was for about the first two weeks, three weeks. But then it started to grind on me like, oh, where is, what am I doing? Like, where's my purpose? Um, so I got a job and that helped a lot. Work has value for us. I remember um, sitting on the subway at one, of the, at one point in that two-month period and seeing an MTA worker uh, sweeping the subway platform and being bitterly jealous of them because they had a job and they had purpose to go to every day. Sweeping the subway platform, which is a noble, noble task, um, but it shows you how much, one, how much value work has, and two, how much I was putting my worth and security in it, and it was really affecting me. I missed the value that work brings to my life. We were made to work and work has tremendous value. The flip side of that is getting our worth from our work. Those are two different things, recognizing that work has value and is good, and when we start to get our worth from it. When worth is dependent, when our worth is dependent on what or how much we produce, then we can make it an idol. We can put it in the place of God. Wouldn't it have been a different story and a bit of a darker story in Genesis 1 if God had said, um, all right, guys, be fruitful and multiply, but bring it up from last quarter a bit, would you? <laughs> We've got a quota to meet here, and there aren't as many little Adams and Eves running around as I would have liked by now, so can we seriously get to work on this? That east wing of the garden, a little lackluster. Let's pull some long days here. No, of course not. In the story we have, God says, here's this beautiful garden I've created for you with a strawberry patch and pomegranate trees and fresh avocados for guacamole <laughs> and juicy meaty animals to snack on. I don't think, I don't think Adam and Eve were vegetarians. I don't know. It's in, the, it's, in the, it's in the story. Maybe, who knows? And while you're making some of that fresh guac, get busy, right? Multiply. <laughs> Our relationship with God is not symbolized by a boss-employee relationship. It's a father-child. And God doesn't tie our worth to what we do or how much we produce any more than a, a dad says his two-year-old daughter has worth by what colors she can identify or, or a four-year-old boy, how high he can count. That's not the way it works. You are not what you produce. You are not what you do. This is really hard for me. <laughs> it's easy for me to get my identity and my worth from what I do and from how much I get done. Ask my wife. I will come home at the end of the day and I'll be like, oh man, here is all the list of things I did today. 
feeling good. <laughs> makes me feel really good to get things done and check things off the list. But you are not what you produce. You are not how much you produce and how much you get done. Maybe I'm preaching to myself. I feel like if I say that long enough, I'll have like a goodwill hunting moment. <laughs> you are not what you produce. You have insurpassable worth because you are a human being. Not a human doer, you're a human being. You're created to be. You're created to be relational. We're made in the image of a good God, period. It's all we are. Son of God, daughter of God. Another way in which we can easily idolize work is by putting our security, and I mentioned this a little bit before, um, Again, idolize, to worship, to love, to put in the place of God, right? Our security. It's easy when we have to forget God as our provider. And certainly, God provides through our work, absolutely. These things are not black and white and cut and dried. But when we start to only put our security in a paycheck, in a savings account, in our work and how much we do, we start to replace God a little bit. When we want for nothing, we don't want for God either. We're mirrors. I've talked to multiple people in our community who are searching for work right now, and I don't wish that on anyone. It's a hard place to be in. I've been there. It's a really hard place. One, because work has value, and two, because it's really easy to, it's easy for me to put my security in work and what I can do to make ends meet. Again, God works through that, but it's God who works through that. It's the chisel of the Lord. <laughs> Where is our security? God's still breaking me in that one, for sure. How about our identity? This is kind of related to worth, but it's really easy for our identities to be wrapped up in what we do. It's the first thing we ask people, right? Hi, who are you? Cool, what do you do? Which is to say, what do you do for a living? Which is to say, how do you make money? It's part of our, it's part of our language. Not... What's your story or what are you about? What do you do? This has been a, a tough thing for me as we've, Steph and I have both been um, stepping out of acting, which is uh, something we've always done. And all of a sudden when you have purpose and you have um, a job that you love and you're passionate about and you're not doing that anymore, who are you? I remember talking to... Um, one of my bosses and dear friends back in Minnesota who I worked for at the university I worked at. And he, uh, uh, he retired at about uh, 71 and um, he had taught theater at, at university for about 40, 45 years. And we talked a lot about when you retire, how do you deal with that? Like, that's, that's a lot, right? He's doing great, by the way. He's loving retired life. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, what do you do? Who are you? Who are you when you're, when you're not that? Who am I if I'm not Nathan Cousins' actor? Who are you if you're not so-and-so consultant or agent or IT guy, designer, assistant, minister, mother, father? It's what you do, but who are you? Just a son of God, just a daughter of God? That's hard, <laughs> it's hard. All right, we've talked about work a little bit. Let's talk about rest. We were created to enjoy life. Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> we were created to enjoy life. The story we have of the dawn of creation, humankind was put in a garden. 
a beautiful place to enjoy. I love the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 34. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I think Mike shared this last week and it was so good that I had to bring it back. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Again, we are driven by our affections and our desires. Don't learn and know, taste and see. Experience the goodness of God. Don't take a class in it, experience it. We serve a God who who could have made the perfunctory things of life purely functional and utilitarian, right? But he didn't. We serve a God, you guys, who created taste buds. How crazy is that? We have to put food in our body to keep it fueled and keep it going. But we have this thing called taste buds, which we can enjoy food. Procreation, work, rest, all these things could have been purely perfunctory, but they have value and they have meaning, and they have worth, and they're beautiful. We can experience the goodness of God in our rest just as we do in our work, but even especially so. Like God made, made the day of rest holy. Now that's where kind of the idea of Sabbath comes in. I won't give you the whole long history behind Sabbath, but um, mainly because I don't know a lot of it. Um, but uh, basically, what, what, we've, what we've taken from Scripture, I did not do an in-depth study on purely Sabbath this week. I'm sorry. It's disappointing, I know. Um, the seventh day that God, that God rested and ceased his work, um, that's where the, the Jewish tradition picked up this idea of Sabbath. And they clung to it tenaciously, right? They were very stringent about things you could do and could not do on the Sabbath day, on the day of rest, because it was holy, because that's the day that God set apart and said, this is really, really, really good. Um, So much so that you would be even subject to severe punishment up to death for working on the Sabbath. This is one of the things Jesus got into big trouble for and was one of the things he was ultimately executed for. I mean, when when, uh, he was caught healing people, much of the time it was on the Sabbath day, and this ticked the religious leaders off. Imagine if we still took rest that seriously today. Imagine if, our boss called, if your boss called you in his office. He's like, Jenkins, don't come in this weekend. There will be serious consequences if you work. You need to take a day of rest. If you come in again next weekend, you're fired. Weekend after that, we're going to stone you to death in the parking garage. <laughs> That's what they did. It's crazy. The ancient Jewish culture was tenacious and very legalistic about the Sabbath day. But the thing we can, we can see in the character of God through all of this story is that God values intentional rest. That rest is really important. It's fourth in that list of 10 commandments. Keep the day of rest. Don't give that up. Our rest is just as important as our work. But how we work and how we rest, that's maybe more important. Unfortunately, we're so steeped in this culture that's so obsessed with success and money and ambition, and that's so much of what drives our work. And that's one of the biggest challenges, but if we can learn to rest well and often and learn what that means, it will change the way we live and it will change the way we work. I have to be really intentional with my Sabbath and rest time because otherwise I fritter it away. I feel like I've never worked so much since moving to New York City, there's just a lot. It's a hard city to live in, and there's a lot to do. There's a lot that you have to do to make the ends meet. Um, so I've had to take a very intentional look at my schedule during the week and say, this chunk of time is time that I am going to do nothing but things that I just enjoy doing. 
It's really tempting for me to even make a list on my Sabbath day. I'll be like, okay, these are the fun things I'm going to do so I can check them off and feel good about it. Um, but that's a, it's, it's, it's time that you just do things because you enjoy them. And, and that's going to be different for everyone, obviously. We're not, going to, we're not going to replace work itself, if that's what you're hoping by the start of this message. That's not what this, the replacement thing is not replacing work itself. Um, but we can certainly start to form new habits and shift our preoccupations and our unhealthy ideas and practices toward work and replace them with finding our worth and security and identity in being a child of God and figuring out how to rest and how to rest well and what that means for our work and how that influences our work. So my challenge you this week is to start small. Schedule a day if you can. Some of us have a whole weekend, which is great. Schedule a day if you can or a chunk of time, half a day, even an evening, a few hours, whatever, whatever you can do, and rest by doing things that truly bring you peace. And like I mentioned, that might be a process of finding those things. Sometimes the first things I go to that I think will bring me rest and peace are things that just sort of numb me from the, from the work and turn my brain off. It's not necessarily what brings me the most peace or rest. It's being intentional about letting myself be and letting myself recharge and debrief. For me, that means getting by myself. Introvert, guilty as charged. I need to go away from people and read a book or take a walk or go to an afternoon matinee, or just, just take time to allow myself some headspace to be. I love this excerpt from uh, the Screw Tape Letters. This is a, a book by C.S. Lewis. Um, that's a, uh, it's an odd one if you're not familiar with it. It's, it's a collection of letters that he fabricated, written, for, written um, from a, a senior demon to this junior tempter. And they have an uncle-nephew relationship, okay? So Screw Tape is the senior tempter, Wormwood is the junior tempter. So everything in this whole book is opposite. So the screw tape is talking about uh, the enemy. He's talking about God. And our father below is the adversary or Satan. So I'm, I'm going to read a little portion of uh, screw tape from chapter 13 in the 13th letter um, because he says, screw tape says some really interesting things about rest and peace uh, that I find really poignant. Um, so he's admonishing Wormwood here for getting out of line with his patient, which is the human that he's been assigned to. So summon my best screw tape voice here. He says, and now for your blunders. On your own, on your own showing, you first of all allowed the patient to read a book he really enjoyed because he enjoyed it and not in order to make clever remarks about it to his friends. In the second place, you allowed him to take a walk down to the old mill and have tea there, a walk through country he really likes. And taken alone? In other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures. Were you so ignorant as to not see the danger in this? The characteristic of pains and pleasures is that they are unmistakably real. And therefore, as far as they go, give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. How can you have failed to see that a real pleasure was the last thing you ought to have let him meet? Didn't you foresee that it would just kill by contrast all the trumpery which you have been so laboriously teaching him to value? And that sort of pleasure which the book and the walk gave him was the most dangerous of all, that it would peel off his sensibility, the kind of crust you've been forming on it, and make him feel that he was coming home 
recovering himself. As a preliminary to detaching him from the enemy, enemy, you wanted to detach him from himself and had made some progress in doing so. Now all that is undone. Some really poignant truth there. There's an adversarial force in our world that wants to keep us numb and driven, heads down and shoulders hunched and pressed into our work as a drudgery for selfish aims of ambition and control and security and identity instead of providing rest for our souls and peace throughout our day and rest that we work out of and not toward as a reward. A rest that fuels us and fills us to give us energy for, to do our work. Elsewhere, Screwtape says, he's a hedonist at heart, talking about God, meaning he's a seeker and lover of pleasure. God created the pleasures. All Screwtape can do is just pervert them. So I would, I would challenge you also to do something this week to, to mock the adversary. Do something purely because it brings you peace and because you enjoy it. Work on honing how to rest. And tr- what truly being at peace means. Get good at it. I hope it will give you, like Screwtape said, a touchstone to reality and feel somehow like coming home. Isn't that what we all strive for in our rest and in our recreation and in our work? And as we go through all these idols uh, during the six weeks of Lent, as I was thinking about them these last few weeks, it all comes down to the same thing, right? Work and rest are good and valuable, but there's something deeper to that. And that's part of the narrative of the kingdom of God. It's always about something deeper. It's always about the heart Right? It's about subverting what we think. It's this upside-down kingdom that flips over on itself. God's constantly peeling back the onion. He's constantly sharpening the point and getting us closer to that idea of home. That's what we're striving for, and that's what ultimately, I believe, our desires and our motivations are grasping at. We're homesick. There's this beautiful picture of this from a a poem by Rainer Maria Rilke. Um, It's from a collection of poems called The Book of Hours, Love Poems to God. I just want to read this one sentence to you. It says, I love you, the gentlest of ways, who ripened us as we wrestle with you. The great homesickness we could never shake off. You, the forest that always surrounded us. We are driven by our desires, our motivations, and our wants, and we all ultimately want the same thing. We're all homesick. We're all longing for home. We long for peace and purpose and worth and security and a deeply rooted identity. And the point of Lent is to try to retrain us and retune us back to God to find those things. May we ever surrender to keep God in the proper place as this mystery that leads us forward and onward and somehow ever back and closer and closer to home. I want to close by uh, reading another quote uh, from Jesus uh, at the end of one of his sermons to crowds and disciples. In, uh, at the end of Matthew's gospel is where it comes at chapter 11. 
Um, and this is, in, um, this is from Eugene Peterson's translation of the message. Um, so as I'm gonna close, why don't, why don't we all close our eyes? And though Jesus was speaking to an ancient Jewish first century culture, there's something about these words that rings so true for us today and jump out of the page at me here in 21st century New York City. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Pray with me. God for us, we call you Father. God with us, we call you Jesus. God in us, we call you Holy Spirit. May we surrender our work to you the work of our hands, the work of our minds. May you inform our deepest desires and Lord, may our worth be derived from you and you alone and our identity come from being your son or your daughter, period. May we work out of our rest. Lead us ever toward true peace, Father, and ever closer to home. We love you and come to you through Jesus, amen.